Hey gang, how are you? This is Eric Sorensen coming to you from my office this morning, Tuesday morning, a little late. Sorry for the tardiness today. Got a lot going on, and so, uh, but did want to get to you and uh, go through our time in First Peter again today. Uh, we're looking. We're at First Peter chapter three. Last time we left off at the end of verse sixteen, and uh, so we're going to read verses seventeen through twenty-two. I always read from the ESV version, and so that's what I'm reading from again today. Now, to set up the context here from last week and really from previous weeks, Peter uh, is encouraging, uh, hi Bonnie, uh, is encouraging the saints that have been gone through persecution and difficulty to basically persevere and to not give in to the temptation to fight back or to fight evil with evil. And so he says this, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Good morning, Cindy. So that's, that's sort of the big idea in that passage. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And now, here comes Peter's anchor to motivate them to do that. He says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. End of reading. Well, first things first. This is going to be a two-part uh, time. We are going to have to spend uh, more time on this than I can possibly get to today because there are some verses in here that frankly are confusing. They're troubling for some um, you know, this this business about uh, going and preaching to the spirits in prison, I'm going to try and explain at least the differing views on what that means today. Uh, but if I do that, I can't possibly give you a good explanation for what in the world Peter means when he says baptism now saves you. Although, let me just give you a spoiler. That's what he means. Uh, that is exactly what he means. But I'll explain to you next week how that can be, how we can be biblical theologians and hold to such a view. I will dig into that only next week. But for this week, I want to look at what Christ has done for us. I mean, this is a wonderful sort of articulation of the gospel, this whole passage here. Uh, first, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Now, this is what Luther and the other reformers referred to as the great exchange. Great exchange language. Why did Jesus need to come? 
Well, he came for sinners. He comes for the sick. He comes for the needy. He comes for people that can't pay for themselves or fix themselves or ransom themselves before a holy God. In other words, he comes for the whole world. And the only way that the ransom can be paid in order to bring us to God is if the blood of a holy offering is given. And that is precisely what Jesus, the Messiah, is. And so you see this language all throughout Scripture. The righteous for the unrighteous. Who's unrighteous? All of us. Every single human being. As Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Romans 3 is brutal in the assessment of all humanity. He, I mean, he literally says there's no one who seeks God, no one who does good. Everyone is under condemnation. I mean, it's really, really dire, very non-seeker friendly. Uh, and as he delivers that, it's right then that he then, when he just gives us no chance of being able to pay for our own sin, it's then that he introduces again the gospel and says, yes, the wages of sin of death is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 has similar language to this in Peter, this great exchange language, our sin for his righteousness. Um, he says in 2, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus takes all our sins and we in return get all of his righteousness. That's the system. That is the way this thing works. That's how we can be brought to God. And so it says, it also says that he rose from the dead. Remember, death and resurrection have to go together when we talk about the gospel. It says it this way here, uh, that he was being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, let me just try to at least break down what's being said there, because, uh, frankly, there's a lot of disagreement about it. Um, first things first, the spirits in prison. There's a few ways to interpret what this prison is. Most people, I mean, we actually say it in the Apostles' Creed, we say that Jesus descended into hell. One of the reasons that we say that in the Apostles' Creed is because of this passage. Now, there's, we do understand hell in that creed to be something a little different than probably the picture you have of like the final place of judgment. It's more like what the Bible might refer to as Hades. It's, uh, for lack of a better term, like a, almost like a spiritual holding tank before the final judgment. I, it's, it's the best way I can kind of describe what that place is in Scripture. But you have Jesus reference this place when he talks about uh, Lazarus and the rich man. Um, you have different... There seems to be a place before where people go who were judged and people will go to be in the presence of the Lord before the final judgment actually takes place. So... 
almost everybody agrees that the spirits in prison here, there's another way of saying Jesus descended to, to where people had been judged. The difficulty comes with trying to determine why he went there. What was he doing there? Why did Jesus descend to the spirits in prison? Well, we get a little bit of a hint. It says in verse 19 that he went and proclaimed something. Now, the word for proclaiming was often used to describe a proclamation of victory. And so most scholars think, um, and not all, but most scholars think that Jesus went to proclaim victory down in hell. Some teachers um, will teach that Jesus actually continued to suffer when he went to hell. It was part of his atonement. That is not a warranted view here at all. He is proclaiming something. He is proclaiming victory. Now, who is he proclaiming victory to? Who are these spirits in prison? Well, there are two, two main views, and then a third that's not so common, but maybe legitimate, and I'll go over them right now. First of all, uh, the one view holds that uh, the spirits in prison were actual like human beings from Noah's day, that's what it says in verse 20, uh, that rejected Noah's call to repent and believe in the God who was providing the ark. Okay, That's the one view, and there are there's good reason to believe that. Um, there's good reason to see that the spirits could be those people, since it does reference people that Noah preached to. On the other hand, um, there is a view that thinks that the spirits in prison were actually demons, that they weren't humans. Now you say, well, how can you say that when it's clear that it's, you know, it says that these are uh people that were from the days of Noah, that didn't listen to Noah, that didn't hear what he had to say. Well, some interpreters believe that in Genesis chapter 6, uh, verse 2 through 4, I believe, it references something um, interesting. It references this group known as, um, <clears throat> well, for lack of a better term, the sons of God, and some scholars, some interpreters believe that what was going on there before the day, in the days of Noah, before the judgment came, is that there were sort of half-demon, half-human children happening. That's, that's a view of a number of scholars. And in that case, what would be being referenced here then is this sort of hybrid race of fallen angels and humans demonic presence it would be demons and so jesus in this case is not going to the prison to pro proclaim victory to the lost souls but he's proclaiming victory over the devil and his minions that he that's the main reason for him going is that he's going down there to proclaim to this this fallen race of angel that he is the one who is victorious over sin death and hell now, either of those views are legitimate. I think you can make the case from Scripture that that is the case. I mean, the, the fact is, for the second view I just said, um, there's, some, there's some really good argument for it. Uh, for one, the word used for spirits here, plural, almost always refers to supernatural beings rather than people uh, in Scripture. 
Uh, and the word for prison um, is almost always used as a place uh, of punishment after death uh, for, uh, or I should say, it's not referred to as a punishment after death for humans, but almost always as a place where Satan and other fallen angels dwell. So uh, those two views, I think, are, are legitimate, though. The third view is something a little, well, it's a little different entirely. And that is that when Jesus went down to this, this hellish place, that he went down there offering the chance of salvation to those who had fallen in the days before Noah's flood. Or had fallen in Noah's flood. I don't think that's entirely unreasonable. But I think it's the hardest one to prove from Scripture, and I think you have to make some leaps there. Um, it's pretty clear in Scripture that it is appointed once for man to die and then to face judgment. So um, this would be teaching in some way or another that at least in this particular instance, it was possible to be saved you know, or to have sort of a second chance after death. That is, that's a pretty big leap for what the rest of the scripture says. Again, appointed once for a man to die and then to face judgment. Um, so I don't tend to lean that way. I don't think that one forfeits their Christianity. If they hold to such a view, I just don't see a strong exegetical basis for it. But, uh, but I'm open to dialogue about that. And, um, and I like the idea of it. So that's the second thing. So Jesus, uh, I don't know if that clears up anything, but that just gives you sort of the options there. That essentially the point of it is that whatever, whoever he's speaking to, Jesus is declaring victory over hell. That's the point of his descent. To go down there and to say, I am the one who has defeated you, Satan, and your minions, and it's over. It's over. You have no chance of winning anymore. Third thing Jesus does in this text is he's shown delivering his salvation to us. And how does he do it? He, do, he does it through baptism. Verse 21, baptism which corresponds to the ark of Noah, in which eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I am not going to go over that today. Like I said, I'll spend the whole next week just talking about that, just talking about baptism as a means of grace and how it can be that baptism saves us. To be more accurate, God saves us through the means of baptism. It's the delivery system by which God gets everything that Jesus accomplished given to us. That's the view that scripture holds about baptism. But again, I'm just going to sort of state that right now, and you can mull that over, and then next week I'll give you all the reasons for that. And then the final part of his accomplishment, of what he's done, is he's ascended. So you have this real nice package here of all the work Jesus does. It says right after, He's gone into heaven, verse 22, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this, by the way, this last verse gives some credence to the view that he was going to proclaim victory to um, 
to demons, to the demonic realm, because there's reference there to the demonic realm or to the spiritual realm where it says he's now ascended to the heights of heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities often used to describe demonic realm and powers again often used to describe the demonic realm having been subjected to him so this is there's there's the idea again jesus comes down suffers on our behalf in our place exchanges his righteousness for our sin descends into hell to declare victory over hell and then ascends to the highest of highs to the right hand of god the most uh, favored place any person could be and is exalted above all things to be praised forever and ever and ever. Now, the ascension, almost always in our presentations of the gospel, us preachers, get short shrift. We don't talk about it very much. But the fact is, it's almost, I mean, it, it's 100% essential. And it's essential for two reasons. Number one, the, the early church talked about it all the time. It was, it was his ascendance to his royal throne. It was him saying his kingdom is established. This was God's mark of his reign over the world. This is the idea from his ascension. This is why if you go and look at many old churches, you'll see the architecture will have Jesus seated on a throne as king, surrounded by all the saints and the powers of the universe bowing down in adoration to him. He is seated now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's not future. That's now. He is reigning now. You are members of his kingdom now. But there's an even more significant, I would argue, reason for why the ascension is so important. And I want to leave you with this today because it's all good news. Jesus says when he ascends that he's not going to just be sitting there accepting praise. That indeed does happen. But he's doing something. We're told in the book of Hebrews that even at this highest place of authority the most exalted place he could be. He is, quote, always interceding for you. In other words, there is never a moment in your life, no matter how far you fall or how bad you are or how much you mess up, do you know there is never a moment during your day that your Savior is not constantly interceding on your behalf? That he's not always praying for you? That's the fact. He literally is. That's what the book of Hebrews says. That the king of heaven and earth and uh, ruler over hell and all things cares about you so much that he's constantly holding up his scarred wrists and his scarred feet to say, I have paid the price. I have paid the price for them. I, I have paid the price for them. They're covered, they're covered, they're covered, they're covered. We never stop being interceded for. Ever. Because, and why is he able to intercede? Because he is the only one worthy to live the life perfectly in our place. He is the only one worthy to die the death for the sins of the entire world. He is the only one worthy to defeat the forces of hell. 
And he is the only one worthy to be called Lord of Lord and King of Kings, worthy of all our praise for all of eternity. So yeah, when he intercedes for you, you can take it to the bank. It's gonna happen. Because he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I hope that's good news for you. I know it is good news for me. He's interceding for you right now and will continue to throughout all of your life. I will see you next week in which we'll talk in deep, deep dive way about baptism. God bless you. Have a good week.